If you've been in business for any time at all, you probably have heard of the Red Bible. The name of the book is called The Ultimate Sales Machine by Chet Holmes. And it's affectionately called the Red Bible because everyone who is in business cannot live without it. There's a concept in the book called the Dream 100. And essentially what it boils down to is you want to identify the top 100 people, people that you want to do business with. So when I started looking at this, basically what I started doing was I was not looking at the people. I was looking at the company and figuring out what companies it was that I wanted to work with and then figuring out who owned those companies. And that's the way that I was approaching it. And that is not the right way to do it. You want to ultimately work with people and you want to interact with people. And obviously you want to be able to interact with people that are on your same wavelength, interested in the same things as you are. And then you can make different connections and different introductions and do things for people that you know that you would like. So it makes it much, much, much easier to be able to do that. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these because there's quite a few of them, but I've got a spreadsheet here that has things, obviously, contact information, email, all of their their social profiles. Then you also want to understand their family. How many kids do they have? What are their kids' names? Business partners, personal partners, childhood influencer, their parents, their grandparents. Is the family involved in business? If so, what type of business? Influencers that they follow, their favorite podcasts. Are they into cars? What type of real estate investment types do they like? Other types of investments, sport, favorite sports teams, favorite celebrities, who's their banker, who's their bookkeeper, personal assistant, realtor, lawyer, favorite politician, country club that they belong to, favorite vacation spots, favorite bands, personal development history. All of these types of things you want to know and understand. And when you start creating this list, this, this Dream 100 list, and you know and understand your target people who you want to be able to bring into your life, this information is going to make it so, so much easier. So if you haven't read The Ultimate Sales Machine, I urge you to go and pick up a copy of that book right now. On the Invest in Square Feet podcast, we unlock the secrets of wealthy entrepreneurship. I'm Matt Shields, and my mission is to help you protect your wealth so that you can invest passively into multifamily real estate. Today, we are going to be talking about SEO. And our guest today goes way back into the very early beginnings of, everyone knows that SEO is sort of one of those holy grails of business, being able to generate sales and opportunities without actually having to go out and sell anyone or market to anyone, but it takes a lot of work. Our guest today, Steve, is an expert in SEO, and he's been doing this for about 20 plus years now. So he's seen all of the changes and he understands how Google and how all of the various different algorithms work. There's a lot packed into this episode today, but we're going to learn some effective strategies and techniques for growing a website organically without relying on paid advertising or any type of link building schemes. With that, let's go ahead and get on to the show. There's three main challenges, right? And each one falls within its respective discipline of what I do, right? It's tech, content, and off-page. From a tech standpoint, choosing the right content management system, 
you know, I, I find it very challenging in many cases to optimize drag and drop systems like Wix and Weebly. It's very difficult to, from a technology standpoint, to have a system that offers all the features and bells and whistles that we need to satisfy Google's recommendations for a great page experience. On the content side, the biggest challenge has always been, unfortunately, on the client side with getting them to contribute to content. I can't tell you how many thousands of rows in spreadsheets I've delivered to clients of pages that they need to create to appear for the keywords that their customers are searching for. Mm -hmm. And they just won't take the time to do it. They won't even dictate it and have you transpose it and, and try to you know, write it yourself. They just don't have the time, bandwidth, interest, or understanding to complete the content piece. And when you outsource almost every single time, they're going to get back this content from some vendor and they're going to go, this isn't how we describe what we do. This isn't how, you know, we would do it. It's like, well, that's why we asked you to write it first. So I think the content piece has always been a challenge. On the off-page side, getting other websites to link to your website, you know, it's, it's almost like a, there's a stigma to it now. Everyone gets an email every day saying, will you link to me? And uh, they don't even open them anymore. They know, oh, this guy's trying to, you know, link bait me to, to share something or link to them. So I think on the, the challenging side of getting links is getting buy-in from the clients on doing something from a content standpoint that's completely out of the box. Hey, mm -hmm. client, help me create an all-inclusive glossary, an ultimate definitive guide to, let's take some of the data that you have that no one else has about your clients and let's create some content that's based on research survey and combine it with our data to have this ultimate research piece that we think even our industry peers and competitors might even link to. We did that last year. We did a study of 300 location pages for Starbucks and Taco Bell and McDonald's. We studied which attributes played a role in them uh, ranking better than their competition. And before you know it, I've, I've got platforms like Bright Local linking to us and I've got Web Pro News and Site Pro News. And we didn't have to do any outreach to, or emails to say, hey, will you link to our page? They were performing their own research on something that they were creating and they referenced ours because we had data and we had statistics and tables and charts. So it's uh, the off-page side is definitely the, the challenge. And of course, wrapping all of that together, the tech, content and off-page and getting buy-in from the clients and from stakeholders is, is often very challenging, especially with the larger brands. Hey, larger brand, you realize right now you've got over 500 important URLs with other websites linking to them that are serving users and web crawlers of 404 air. Yeah, we'd like to get to that, but SEO on the MarTech side of things isn't really a priority right now. We're working on new platform things and changes and you know, but, but we'll put it in Jira and we'll get to it in, you know, in due time. Mm -hmm. You know, meanwhile, all those pages continue to just disappear from the search results. The traffic disappears, goes away forever. We're dealing with a, a client right now who's completely blocked the root of their website from being indexed from search engines. And we looked at their search console this morning. They were getting as much as 55,000 visits a day to these pages uh -huh. that now no longer exist in Google's results. They're still out there. If you direct type them in, you can go to them, but they've blocked the search engines. Then nobody knows why. It turns out it's probably something having to do with this Microsoft Azure program where they said, hey, hey, clients, you know, we've got a new feature. You can block all the spam bots of the world. Just click yeah. this button. And somebody said, oh, neat. And they clicked it and not realizing they're blocking Google and Bing from being able to, you know, to serve their content. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I think getting, getting buy-in from from developers who can talk very savvy to you sometimes 
and argue with you very well can be a huge challenge. So having documentation, having the Google webmaster documentation and being webmaster documentation as arsenal to combat those situations can help. And the other thing to do is, is to reward those people through recognition when they do fix something. Hey, by the way, I don't know if you realize this, but those 55,000 visits translated into roughly $300,000 a day in revenue. So by you fixing this, you've just saved the company X millions of dollars per year. So kudos to developer Sam, who basically saved the company X millions of dollars a year. Don't take credit for it. Give the credit to the people who did the work so that they have buy-in and feel like, hey, my work is validated. And now moving forward, Sam, can you fix this thing? Yeah, I might save the the company more money. Of course, I'll do it right away. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned there's, you know, essentially there's the three different categories. You've got your your CRM or your platform. Uh, you've got your your content generation, and then you've got your your promotion side of things. Talk a little bit about your your story of finding the best solutions, you know, for each one of those things. I mean, obviously, this has been going on for you know, a good number of years, but twenty four years, yeah. How did you determine, you know, this is the best way to be able to do this? And does this change a lot too with all the different, you know, the different updates and, you know, obviously everyone remembers Panda Update, you know, that was a big one. So does that kind of shift depending on what new technologies or what new updates are are coming out? Yeah. And I wish, I wish there was a one, one solution for all scenario. Even in the early days, we would just use static HTML and we would borrow from CSS uh, Zen Garden to create lightning fast tableless design. And even that, you can't find a single page on that site now that will pass Google's web vitals and some of the other technical criteria that we pay attention to. So the challenge is finding a platform that works with all of the different technical SEO requirements, such as speed, mobile friendliness, security, web vitals, accessibility, that comes fully integrated with all of those features while still being flexible enough for a marketer with no technical experience to log in, create and optimize content. Today, you really, you really can't get both, right? You, you get WordPress, for example, and there's some ways that you can amplify speed using caching and plugins and third-party systems, some of which are getting really controversial that can make it seem to Google like we're following everything when a lot of times we're just hacking their tests, testing tools, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to actually creating a lightning fast experience that still, that still enables the, the writers and the creators to go in and and make changes. The other solution is, you know, the, the old school way, let's take all the new frameworks and all the new technologies and headless and everything that we can do from a technology standpoint and create incredibly lightning fast, amazing experiences for customers. But in doing so, we've got to get rid of CMS. If we get rid of CMS, now the writer has to deliver their draft in a Word document or a Google document and wait for the developer to load it up and then go back to the developer after the fact and have them do more of the optimizations once the page is live. And that's that's a grueling process that could really delay things. And if you're trying to rank for a new keyword that people are looking for, you're going to lose. You need to get that page up today. If you're a news website, you know, the moment that news hits within the next two hours, that needs to be live. So waiting for it to go through that dev process to deploy content can be really challenging. So big sites, news sites, LA Times and New York Times and so forth, all build some homegrown 
systems that that work for them uh, because they have the millions of dollars to do that with. Yeah. But uh, but for the small, regular day-to-day businessman, business people, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. the uh, the best approach is is just to let some things go. You want to be able to have the ability to control your content and not be at the you know, having to wait for a developer to do something sure. for you. So I would say just just be okay with not having all these perfect technical scores. Work with WordPress. If you're on a uh, if you're selling products and you're doing e-commerce and you have more than 20 products, Shopify or another system that we've worked with for nearly decade and a half now is called Circuit Networks. They used to be called SEO Cart. They have an incredible, and originally it was SEO Cart, literally. So it was mm-hmm. CMS that that was optimized specifically for ranking and search results. And it works great for, for most businesses. Shopify, you know, does have some features like that have one one button checkouts, you know, with the shop app and some other attributes that make conversion better, which can affect long-term SEO. So, so I'd, I'd say, you know, tests, those are the two that I know work really well. And every day there's new things coming out that you could test, but I don't like to reinvent the wheel and I don't like to pay somebody to make their product better. I get a lot of that where I'm feeding suggestions and complaints to CMS systems and then they go and they fix those things. And I'm like, wow, I just, I just literally paid them to fix their system. Yeah. 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 And so I, I'd say work with the ones that are already doing well. WordPress will do you just fine if you're a small business and you're doing lead generation and Shopify will do you just fine if you're an e-commerce um, site and they're getting better every day because they're getting complaints and suggestions from other digital marketers. Mm-hmm. Go about qualifying a developer or qualifying code to make sure that it is, you know, using 2022 standards and and processes and, and what for sure i think that's where you get a consultant who specializes in and web development you know not not to be the person who helps build it but to be the second set of eyes to make sure that it's being built in a way that that you feel confident about in terms of pre-qualifying them i would ask to do or i would have that consultant do an interview with the person to have them show the code of how they code what's your logic look like how do you operate how do you store files, how are you doing your styles and your, your JavaScripts and, and jQueries? Can I use Python and do some cool things and, and still be able to have elasticity in how the site's built? Or is it very rigid? And if something breaks, a semicolon goes away, the whole site goes down. Right. So I think there's got to be that. And the one thing I would look for for sure is is a, a staging environment, mm-hmm. right? I would look for that first. I would say I would always have a staging environment. So before we roll out big site changes, uh, we want to make sure that everything's on staging. And even in the content process, even if we've got to deploy something in two hours, deploy it in both places on staging and in production. That way you can still get it live, but you don't have to worry about if you do a full site refresh, that something on production gets wiped out from some change that happened on staging. Mm-hmm. So I would say that would be the one thing I would look for is, is tell me how you operate from a change management standpoint, a redundancy standpoint, and sustainability. I think if you're paying attention to all those things, and as long as, you know, you can look at the code and see that that person's logic is well-organized and clean mm-hmm. and not just uh, looks like a, a giant hash, then you should yeah, be good. Yeah. You mentioned redundancy there. What are some good rules of thumb to be able to make sure that, you know, you have the proper backups in place or, you know, that the proper, you know, just, just backup to make sure that if the site does go down, you're not going to lose all of your data that, <laughs> you know, has been accrued over, over the years. Yeah, and this, this will depend on your CMS too. Like WordPress has has tools and plugins that you could use that will back up the entire WordPress database for you. And you can run those periodically. It will 
bog down the storage on your server. So you got to make sure you also have a purge policy. So you don't want to have a year worth of backups and suddenly your site just goes down because you ran out of space. Yeah. So I think having and creating some policies to, to manage those backups will help prevent something from breaking, but it depends on how much traffic you get. So if you get a, you know, a ton of traffic, then you probably want to run backups, I don't know, every hour. Mm -hmm. If you're getting somewhere in the middle range of maybe you're getting, I don't know, 40, 40,000 hits a day or something, then you want to at least back up once or twice a day. And then if you're, if you're kind of a smaller business and don't get that much traffic, probably once a week or once a month should be more than enough for you. Once a week probably make people feel safe that, okay, great. I, I've loaded up some pages, but the whole system just crashed. Don't worry, we'll pull last week's backup and we can go to archive.org to get some of that content that we just published a couple of days ago. Or we can just load it up again since it's only two days or three days worth of, of content that has to be republished. You mentioned, you know, this is a small business level. This is kind of medium. This is large. What are the, like the, the daily hits that would, you know, sort of define each one of those, would you say? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. I would say if, if you're receiving less than 10,000 visits a month, then you probably fit into that, that small business range. If you're getting 10,000 visits, then, you know, you're, you're safe running a weekly or monthly backup and probably not having any problems. Once you start getting over 10,000 to maybe, you know, 50,000 or so around, around that range, then you're probably, you know, middle range. And then anything over 50, it could be scary if the site goes down because, you know, as, as I mentioned, it's, that could be a lot of revenue. If you look at each visitor, depending on, on how much your average order value is being worth a dollar mm -hmm. and you're getting 50,000 visits, that's $50,000 a day that it could be costing you. And you can see what your, your average visit value is, you know, in your web analytics. And if you're doing e-com or even if you're doing lead generation and you can get an average of what each customer means to you and what percentage of people who come to the website become customers, you can do that number and assign a value to every lead, every form fill, every chat click, every phone number click. You can assign a value to that. And then uh, it makes it really easy to forecast what new traffic could mean to you and mm -hmm. what a loss of traffic could cost you. Yeah, no, makes, that makes perfect sense. And I think that that's, I think a lot of people skip over that step to actually define what, you know, what their traffic is actually worth and, you know, what they truly, you know, generating every day based off of, you know, whatever that number of clicks is. So the second part was the, the content generation, right? Yes. So talk a little bit about your story of finding, you know, kind of your best path to create good content. Like you, you mentioned, you send these lists of topics or, you know, search, sure. um, search phrases to, to your clients, but they don't know what to do with it. Do you have any suggestions on how to, you know, some type of framework and how to be able to, you know, quickly be able to create large amounts of content like that, that is useful, or is it, oh, yeah. you know, going one by one that you just have to start creating content? We've definitely had to figure it out over the years mm -hmm. because of that same challenge. I'm like, Hey, I just gave you a thousand pages to create over the right. next, you know, a couple of years, send over the content, I'll load it up, I'll optimize it. And you'll start to appear for more keywords. That's mm -hmm. what we used to say. And then some of them plumbers and smaller businesses would come back and say, I'm a plumber, period. <laughs> and you're like, all right. So let's see. Uh, the question was about, you know, leaky drains and what to do. Yeah. That was the, you know, like the question. So I think content starts, of course, I always like to have everything be data-driven. So we look at our, our search term reports from our Google ads and our Bing ads, and we figure out what keywords are actually driving customers and sales. Forget about volume, right? If 
if there's 10,000 searches for a broad keyword like shorts, and you don't convert many of those, but a more specific keyword, I don't know, maybe um, kids shorts is very specific and it attracts a specific audience of so people who are looking for kids shorts and that keyword converts for you. Don't optimize your page for shorts, optimize it for kids shorts. Yeah, you'll get less hits, but the hits that you do get will be better qualified. The click-through rate will stay higher in the search results and Google will really note that URL was the most helpful to the people that you were actually trying to get to it. So I'd say start with data first, whether it's through Search Console, uh, Google Analytics data, your Google Ads search term history, whatever. Take all of that and start there. Match those search terms up to the pages you already have and work on those pages first. Once you've fully optimized every page on your site, and by the way, that process as you're going through it, whether it's just a Google sheet or an Excel sheet, you know, starts with the URL and then page title, focus keyword, page description, heading tag, subheading, 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 image name, all of the different SEO attributes, image alt attribute, um, all of those things can be tracked in one single sheet if you're if you're bootstrapping it instead of using software. So as you as you list all of the pages that you currently have and all of the keywords you want those pages to appear for, and then start working through each column to get it optimized and then publish it. That's kind of a that's kind of a phase one in any sort of SEO timeline. Is let's optimize the pages we already have first, and then let's expand. Now let's go out to some of these keyword tools. Let's use Answer the Public and SEMrush and mm -hmm. Ahrefs, Conductor, Bright Edge, whatever you want to use. And let's pull and aggregate all of our competing keywords. Similar Web is a crazy tool for this now too, by the way. And so you take all of those search terms, right? You parse out all the brand names that still exist, even after you run that little, you know, intersect to see, you know, the ones that are common among the competition. And then you take those, match them to the pages that you already have and say, okay, great, here's the ones that we already have and what's missing from our sites that our competitors are getting traffic for that we aren't yet. Maybe you're a spiral staircase company and you don't realize that the keywords that they're looking for are the use types like spiral stairs for basement, for attic, for library, mm. for patio. Maybe that's how they're looking for the product that you sell, the uses of how they might use it. So you'll start to create content based on those uses. But to find out how they're finding you and how they're using it, you've got to take a look at the competitors, reverse engineer their keywords, and then you have this universe of keywords. And from that, you know, you, you study the information, you find common themes, and then you build a new site map, right? Either to augment your existing or to completely flush your existing and come up with something that's even more structured and intuitive. If you're building your navigation and your website based on how people are searching for what you offer, then you're going to just own it in digital marketing. But if you're building your website and launching content based on what you want to showcase, then it's a business card brochure website, not meant for digital right. marketing. You should really right. build your navigation and your site based on how people are looking for what you offer and building silos of content, starting with the most important, I mentioned spiral staircases, that might be a category. And then under that category, it's spiral staircases for basement, library, deck, whatever, right. as opposed to just, hey, let's just throw this content on a blog post since that's easy and quick. And, and what happens that gets buried over time in an RSS feed, it doesn't, stay in the same silo. And eventually somebody sees a date from 10 years ago in the search results and like, yeah, I don't think this is gonna be very helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's a lot of, a lot of lazy approach in how keywords become content that, that businesses should just take the three to six months they need to, to create that comprehensive roadmap. So they never have to think about it again. They know exactly what pages they need to have, create, 
and nurture over time. And then you just put them all in, on a calendar. You have somebody whose job is to go back in and every month make sure that those pages are performing well in terms of keyword rankings, driving leads, click-through rates improving. And whenever you see any of those different metrics start to slip, then that gets you know a ticket created for somebody on the writing team or tech team, depending on what the problem is, you know, to address. And if you're smart, you're also watching because you probably got 10 to 20 really important pages on your website. If you're right. smart, you're also watching the 10 to 20 important pages on your competitor's website using tools like Visual Ping, B-I-N-G, so that when they do make an update, change an H1 tag, add an image, add a video, add more content, whatever they happen to do, you'll get a little notification and you can keep an eye on what they're doing and, and maybe even test some of the things that appear to be working for them. So that way you're not blindsided and one day wake up and find all your competitors with these beautiful product tiles under the listings and yours just is a black text and a blue link. Yes. I, I think that's something that, that businesses should really get with their digital marketing team and company and say, what is our content roadmap? How did you put this together? Was it from our own data and from competitor insights? And what's missing? What's the keyword gap? What are we missing? What are we not appearing for that competitors are that we need to improve upon? And how are we going to track that? I think that's that's a key element of content. And you're right. I think I think in a lot of cases, the client just doesn't have the time or the energy or the desire to create a really great page. And they'll create these crappy pages. You mentioned the Panda update, thin, yeah. thin content. You know, if you throw a paragraph up and you want to compete against a page that's got 3,000 words, six subheadings, four unique images and a video on it, good luck. Yeah, right, <laughs> Don't waste right. your time creating a page if you're not going to make it better than the number one ranking result for the keyword you hope your page is going to rank for. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. When you go through, you have a new client, do you often run into situations where the client may not necessarily know who their, you know, their, their competitors are, or does everyone pretty well have and you know, with that, how do you identify who your top competitors are? Do you just do a Google search for whatever your topic is and whoever shows up at the top, maybe they're you know, doing a sponsored ad or something like that, those are your competitors? Or is there a deeper strategy to be able to identify you know, who those key players are that may be going after those but long tail keywords? It's 16 months of data, right, Matt, in, in Search Console. You have 16 months. So you could do a, a filter in Search Console where you remove your brand name even and see the non-branded searches that your site's coming up for. You can even look at the words that they use for branded searches. How are they putting in your name and what they were searching for? You can get a lot of that, that initial data right from Search Console, go out to Google, perform a search for those keywords, the non-branded ones, and find the, the competitors that are appearing for those search terms. And then you take those competitors and you put them into keyword tools. And you might find some even bigger opportunities I would start there, start with how people are already searching for what you do, if you've been around for a while, and then, you know, find those I competitors, the ones that appear for the keywords that you want to appear for. I get that a lot from some of our clients, like, well, those aren't necessarily competitors that, you know, the Grubhubs and the Uber Eats, you know, we actually sell through them. Uh, yeah, but they're outranking us for restaurant delivery in our area, and we want that traffic. And you're paying a premium to have them send your orders in, whereas if they went to your website, and ordered and went through Grubhub or, or yeah. Uber Eats through your site, you pay a different fee for that. So don't you want to save some money on that and, and yeah. outrank that competitor by having a better restaurant delivery page than them? So I think, I think a lot of times there's just that two parts, right? They know who their direct competitors are, but not who their eye competition is in search results. And then the second part of that is, is convincing them that even industry websites 
and retailers of their products are competitors. Amazon is everyone's you know, e-commerce yeah. competitor sure. and they win 90% of the time. So you've got to get really creative to make your page better and more helpful and convincing because unfortunately 50% of the users are going to go, okay, it's $59. Doesn't seem to be any kind of sale or offer or anything compelling to make me want to click. Let me see what they sell it for on Amazon. That's yeah. exactly yep. what they do. They take that product title, they copy it, they go to Amazon, they see if they can get a better price. And now that company just lost what, 35%? of the potential extra profit they could have had if they went directly to the website. So I think I think it's really spending some time with the usability and conversion rate team, even if you're delegating it to somebody who isn't an expert at it, get them some training, have them go to some conferences, read some books. Tim Ash has a great book on landing page optimization. Throw some, some sales principles in there. Trust, reciprocity, urgency, scarcity. I remember a, a watch a consignment site we worked with that's like, hey, we got a problem. We've got a ton of inventory right now and I need to get rid of some because, you know, we have to keep this balance of what's coming in and what's going out and we're overstocked. We need to get rid of some product. So we put up a, a cool little box when you're on this page looking at a, you know, a $5,000 Rolex watch and you're, you're looking at it for four seconds. All of a sudden, this little box comes in, not a light box. It actually pushes the content down and isn't an intrusive light box and has a little timer on it. And it says, mm -hmm. buy this watch within the next 20 minutes, $5,000 watch you know, and save $700 or save, you know, 800 bucks or whatever it is. So that creates a sense of urgency. And there's this ticker going down that says, yeah, this is going away. Oh, and by the way, three other people are watching this right now. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's some really creative things that you can do using sales principles to keep them from leaving and going somewhere else. But I think that's a big part of it, of, of content. It's not so much just having the better content, but it's also about buyer psychology and making sure that you're talking to the right people with the right language. You're not on a B2B site saying buy now. On your B2B, you're saying learn more. On your B2C, you're crossing off your price and putting better pricing and timelines and when it ends. And again, creating that scarcity urgency mentality. Anyway, kind of breaking away a little bit from overall no. content strategy, but that's something that often gets neglected. Yeah, no, that's so helpful. Then lastly, the the tool or the connecting to other people that you mentioned, kind of that third prong. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way for best practices there? You mentioned, you know, creating the content that people would reach out and, you know, link to you. So you kind of take that work out of it. You know, what are some of the frameworks to be able to put that type of content together, you know, making it valuable, putting it in the right place so that people can find it, who are looking for that, those types of things. And, and have it support the lower funnel content, not be in its own silo. So questions, what, when, why, where, how, ideas, tips, strategies, checklists, guides, mm -hmm. documents, all of those types of, of queries that are being made are potential traffic opportunities for you. So I would definitely take some time, look at tools like answerthepublic.com, go into SCMrush if you use it and click on the questions tab, go into conductor search light, you know, and filter based on upper funnel filtering so that you're, you're looking at keywords where people are, aren't necessarily ready to buy or considering buying, they're trying to solve problems. Those types of queries can generate a lot of traffic for you. Even our, our little page on why are Yelp reviews or how important are Yelp reviews and anatomy of a local landing page, right? All of those types of, of queries are upper funnel. They don't necessarily drive customers right away, but they can play a big role in helping us to attract links to our sites as well as triggering remarketing so that we can bring them into 
the lower funnel eventually, mm -hmm. getting them to opt in and seeing where they are, you know, in, in our own CRM and just continuing to nurture, nurture that lead until they actually become a lead. I think that's, that's a great way. And, and so there's, there's a million different strategies and we, what we've done, we've evolved ours over time. We used to say, here's the uh, suspicious links we should probably clean up and put that first. Google's done such a great job recently of filtering a lot of that out that we don't pay as much attention to it. So at the end now, here are where the, uh, the top competitors in your industry are getting links. So we'll take the top 20, 50, 100 competitors in your industry, uh, run them through a link research tool and come up with a list of the ones that are linking to the most of our competitors. Hey, you're a surgeon. Surgeon.org is linking to all of your competitors except for you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. finding, finding those, those semantic opportunities. So what we've done is we've broken it into two phases. Uh, we've broken it into quick wins, right? Which is three to four months of some quick wins. And then we, we've have a phase two where we get into more of the more challenging types of and more resource heavy types of link building. Now the quick wins are easy. The first thing you do is you fix all the broken links. If there's a lot of you know links coming to your website and they're going to four or four pages, let's redirect them to the most corresponding page that you moved it to so that you can get back those links. A major restaurant brand we work with had, what was it, 5,000 links pointing to their 15 different four or four Veterans Day free meals wow. pages Wow! that so we created a static, you know, URL, an evergreen page, and we redirected all 15 of those four or four pages to the, the new page. And we reclaimed 5,000 links almost overnight. You can log into your Google analytics, go to content, do a filter by title and look for any title that includes not found. Take that list, put it in a spreadsheet and then put a column next to it of where those pages should go. Set that redirect in place and probably within a couple of days you'll reclaim a dozen, maybe a couple hundred wow. links that you would have lost. That's number one. Unlinked mentions is another easy way. Any website that mentions your brand, but doesn't link to you, you can reach out and say, hey, it might be helpful to your users if they can click on our name and visit our website. Don't ask for the link. That's, you know, again, it's yeah. a stigma about it, right? The other quick win that you could do, so we've got broken links, uh, we've got unlinked mentions. What's another really quick win of something that you could do that doesn't take a lot of time? You could do the same thing with the broken links on competitors. If competitors have pages that went away and you can create a better page than what they had, then you can go back out to those websites that were linking to your competitors, going to a 404 page and saying, hey, we've realized this link is dead. Maybe consider ours as a replacement for it. Mm -hmm. Ours is, you know, it's it's up to date. It's 2022. It's got some cool things in it. Yeah. If you ever mentioned you in it, right? And sometimes doing a little bit of that ego bacon out. Yep. And then getting into the more complicated, let's get those links competitors have earned. Let's create some really creative ideas. Let's, let's create some tools, some calculators, some features on our website that everyone will want to link to. Hey, we're a design site. Let's create a color palette page that that's super dynamic and interactive. It's going to cost us $15,000 to do it, but we're going to earn 15,000 links out of it. And the whole industry will be linking to us as a resource because of all these great tools that we have on our website. Let's solve the common problems that our customers have. Hey, customer service, what are the questions that you get every day? Let's mm -hmm. create some answers on our website that could solve those things. Let's scrape Quora and answers.com for questions people have in our industry and create content around those topics. Some of my favorites, Progressive as a dress like Flo for Halloween campaign that I love. Okay. I love watching how many people go to Progressive because they want to dress like Flo for Halloween. Yeah. Uh, when web design goes to hell is this article by... Uh, was it the oatmeal? And I remember as a web designer reading this graphic 
and going, oh my God, that's so true. So many clients think they know so much more than we do about what we do that we get to the point where we're just like, like, look, just do whatever you want. But it's this funny comic that earned thousands of links to it because it resonates with, uh, you know, with, with a certain audience. And every day, more and more people are sharing this and resharing it. And hey, doesn't this client remind you of this link, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of cool ideas. You could do a Google search for great link building ideas and our link bait ideas and find a huge library that exists out there, ways that you can attract visitors to your website using, you know, link bait tools, guides, glossaries. You could do some cool things like scholarships. Community events are huge. If you can do a community event and then go to your neighboring businesses and get them to link to you, especially if you're brick and mortar and you're trying to get people to your restaurant, you could go out to all the other businesses in the, in the community and, and invite them to participate. They're not going to have time. They're not going to have money to donate, but they're going to feel bad that they have neither. And they'll at least give you a link in their blog post to help you promote the event. And how great would that be for Google to find hundreds of links to your site from neighboring businesses that are all linking to you with maybe even with your name, address, phone number, and a short description of what you do that might include keywords. Right. So I think, I think there's a, a huge unlimited infinite idea library of what you could do to attract links without having to do a lot of outreach. All right. So did you get a lot of value out of this one? I know that I did. I feel like these topics like SEO are one of those things that pretty well every single business owner needs, but every single business owner struggles with it. It wasn't necessarily called out in the show, but I want to stress how important it is for people to be linking to your website. So when you think about this, this is just like humanity, right? If you have someone who's very, very popular, who has a lot of people who are connected with them and a lot of people who want to be a part of them, you should consider your website the exact same type of thing, right? If you have a lot of people who are wanting to link to your website and posting your link on their website, you're a quote unquote popular website, right? So just like if you're a popular person, you're going to have a lot of connections all over the place. The same is true with this. But typically, a lot of people will approach this process in a very, very spammy type of way where they're essentially begging for people to post the link to their website on their website. So not very, very effective. What Steve talked about today was creating a report. And what a lot of people end up doing with this report is they will put it behind a wall where you have to give the email address in order to get, be able to get this report. What Steve is suggesting is taking that same type of report and essentially just posting it on your website and giving it away for free. So that way then other people will link back to you. Other people will link to that report. They'll show that report on their website through the link. And then that's going to help your SEO as well. So different mentality, different way of being able to use those types of assets that typically you're holding to yourself, give it away and let people link to you to create that popularity. And, and that way you're going to have this wave of SEO link building ability that's going to start growing and, and driving traffic to your website organically. Steve has a great special for us here today. Normally this costs about 600 bucks, but he is giving it away to our listeners for free. So if you go to academyofsearch.com and use the code SEO Steve, 
you'll get the course for free. Remember, that was $600 and you're going to get that course for free by going to academyofsearch.com and use the code SEO Steve. If you want to reach out to Steve directly, he can be found at SEO Steve pretty well everywhere. And Steve also said that if you ever have any questions, like why am I not ranking for this SEO term, that they offer, his team offers free advice on his social channels. And that is just Wiedemann, which is at Wiedemann, W-I-I-D-E-M-A-N. And if you want to understand what the wealthy do, head over to Invest in Square Feet and sign up for the newsletter We include additional tips that you can only get from the newsletter, and we also reveal investment opportunities that you can only get introduced to through the newsletter. We drop every Wednesday, and we are available on whatever podcast platform it is that you use. 